So will the Liberals actually follow through on the idea of universal pharmacare? A panel of experts has now recommended a universal pharmacare program funded by the government, funded by you, to the tune of $15 billion a year when fully implemented by 2027. Is this the best way to ensure all Canadians have access to prescription medicine? Can the government even afford this? Joining me now is the Health Minister, Jeanette Pettipat-Taylor. Minister, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right. The, gov the Prime Minister has already basically tweeted out his support of this. If you read his tweet, he said your government is committed to a national pharmacare program. Does that mean your government will adopt the recommendations from Dr. Eric Hoskins and this panel? Well, first of all, I want to thank the Advisory Council for the work that they've done over the past year. They've had a national conversation with over 30,000 Canadians, and this week we received their final report. And as a government, we've made it very clear we're committed to ensuring that all Canadians have access to a national pharmacare program. So, okay, when? So there, are you committed to following his timeline and the, the expert's timeline, which means it would start pretty soon, and then you'd ramp it up, to 2027. Is that the timeline you're committed to? The report gives us a good framework, a beginning, but we certainly recognize there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get there. But absolutely, the timeline certainly helps us. We have to recognize that over the past three years, we've done a lot of work to lower the cost of prescription medication in this country. If we want to move forward with the National Pharmacare Program, we have to lower the price of medication. We've been doing that. We're working towards that. And now the next step is going to be working with provinces and territories. Okay, so when will you formally say yes we accept it, and yes, this is the timeline, because the NDP already says you've got a credibility gap, that no one believes you, that this is going to be a carrot that you're dangling to get reelected, and it's another broken promise like electoral reform or the budget. Why should we believe you're actually going to do this as a government? Well, first of all, we've been working towards this goal for the past three years by lowering the price of drugs. We received the interim report of the Advisory Council in March of this year. Two main recommendations that they made was, number one, putting in place a Canadian drug agency, and the second thing was to make sure that we addressed rare diseases. And in the budget 2019, we received that funding. When I hear the NDP saying in the House of Commons that they're going to make sure that a pharmacare program will be put in place by 2020, it's not realistic. Right. We've been doing this work for the past three years. We have to establish um, contracts and negotiations with provinces and territories. And just like the Medicare system in 50 years gone by, it took 10 years to put in place the Medicare Act to make sure that all provinces and territories uh, were going to sign on. So this process... Because it's their jurisdiction. They have to opt into this program. Constitutionally, we can impose this on provinces. We have to have them at the table. And the government has to play, the federal government has to play a leadership role to make sure that we have those conversations because we are committed to making sure that all Canadians have access to a national program. It's going to cost at least $15 billion if it's fully implemented by 2027. Where do you get the money? Well, first of all, we have to say if we don't invest this money, it's already costing our system an awful lot of money. We recognize that over a million Canadians aren't taking their medication right now. And we look at the issue of chronic disease, they're just on the rise. So the cost of inaction is very, very high. So we want to invest in Canadians, and that is going to be our priority. Okay, but where does it come from? That's true. So are you going to revise? $15 million is not an inconsequential amount. And it costs just under $4 billion just to get this thing going with 50% of the essential medicines go on that list if the provinces all add uh, opt in on that again i ask you where does that money come from is it from general revenues do you raise taxes do you do you borrow for deficit where is this money coming from once again um Evan, we have to keep in mind that we have to work with provinces and territories. The federal government is absolutely going to have to put some money on the table. We're, we know that, and we want to do that. So give us an idea. Will Okay, so the classic formulation, and in, in when we talk about 
provincial health plans in the old days was 50%. That's what the federal government used to pay for in, in public health. Now we're down to 21% or 22% or less even. We'll uh, put a number down. Will the government commit to paying for 50% of pharmacare? There's that used to be the old pharma. I think that we have to keep in mind here you're putting the cart before the horse. We really have to, first of all, put in place a framework to move forward toward, toward this national program. And as a government, we are committed to making sure that everyone has access to this. If I may just for a moment, Evan, before I entered politics, I was a social worker. And I can tell you, when I would bring clients to the hospital and the doctor would give them a prescription and the, the client would look at me and say, Jeanette, what am I supposed to do with this? They just did not have the means to pay for it. It's not right in a country as rich as Canada that Canadians don't have access to it. Okay. And that's why we have to move forward with this. Okay. It's a priority. Minister, why universal, though? And I spoke to Dr. Eric Hoskins, who spearheaded this panel. And I said, look, the Liberals put in something for child benefits. And it was means-tested, income-tested. So the rich don't get that money. Why not do the same for pharmacare? There's lots of people that have private health care coverage through their companies. They are covered. Why not make this income or means tested? It might save some money. Would you be open to that? Once again, um, we're, we're reviewing all options. Uh, the cabinet has to meet and to discuss this report. We've received the report this week, and since then we haven't had a cabinet conversation, but we are committed to making sure that we move forward with a system that all Canadians will receive coverage. Okay, but Dr. Eric Hoskins says universal, yep. universality is key. Mm -hmm. But you guys changed the universal element of the child benefit program that the Harper government had to means testing. So I just ask as the health minister, are you opposed to looking at means testing pharmacare, income testing it, as opposed to universality? Or are you committed, like the panel, to universality? We have made it clear, myself and the Prime Minister, that we are committed to making sure that all Canadians have access to a universal pharmacare program. To and a universal? Yeah. Okay, so are you concerned that companies that provide health care might say, okay, great, Federal government's going to start paying for this. I'm going to start rolling back all sorts of uh, pri private health care plans or company health care plans. Our objective is to make sure that people have access to the medication that they need. At this point in time, when I hear clients tell me that they're not taking their medication or that they're cutting their, their medication in half, it's just not right. We certainly recognize if we make the investments in a national pharmacare program, we're going to be saving monies in the health care system in general. So moving forward, that is our priority. And now we have to work on a framework to move forward. But again, being, having said that, a lot of work has been done over the past three years, and we're going to continue on doing that work. Last question on this. Some are concerned that they say, well, I have a very good company health plan. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that if there's a universal plan, the quality of my plan is going to go down, mm -hmm. that the universal government plan is going to be worse than the health care plans that I have through a mm -hmm. company. Absolutely. Will you guarantee us that it won't be worse, that we won't have to lower the quality of our plans right now in an exchange for universality? We are committed to making sure that what Canadians have now, it's not going to decrease their coverage. And again, that's the type of work that we need to do with respect to provinces and territories. But based on what forward. baseline though? Like what plan is the baseline? Well, again, again, we're in the details of that, but we are committed to making sure that Canadians aren't going to have lower coverage than what they have now. Minister, let's talk for a quick second about edibles, cannabis. Uh, edibles will be legal in October, just before the election. The first products will roll out on shelves, I guess, in December. What precautions is your government taking to make sure edibles are not available to children or attracting children? 
Well, first and foremost, protecting the health and safety of our kids has always been our top priority when it comes to the legalization of cannabis. Uh, and with respect to edibles, the rules are going to apply that with respect to marketing to kids, making sure that products that are tempting to kids are absolutely not going to be allowed. So if people think that gummy bears are going to be uh, available in the market, that is not the case because it's very tempting uh, and we want to make sure that that is not going to be the case. Come October, it's going to be very much a transitional approach. We're not going to see tons of products on the market illegally um, uh, on the first day in question, but slowly but surely they'll be entering the market. All right, I got to leave it there. Minister, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up on Question Period, Canada's Conservative Premiers are threatening a national unity crisis over new pipeline regulations. Is the threat real or are they just playing politics or is the Prime Minister playing politics with this? Former Premiers Alison Redford and Christy Clark join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. It's absolutely irresponsible for Conservative Premiers to be threatening our national unity if they don't get their way. A national unity crisis is coming down the pipe. Well, that's part of a dire warning Jason Kenney and five other Premiers gave the Prime Minister in a letter. Now, they want him to kill two controversial environmental and natural resources bill, one that overhauls the environmental assessments for major natural resource projects like pipelines, and the other bans tanker traffic to the northern coast of B.C. Now, they argue these bills will kill their economies and any new project, and Jason Kennedy, the Alberta Premier, says he'll launch a constitutional challenge arguing that the government is overreaching its power. So is this a full-blown constitutional crisis? the way Premier Kenny warns, or is this just another sampling of pipeline politics playing out ahead of the federal election? To find out, let's bring in two former Premiers uh, from the West. Christy Clark is the former Liberal Premier from British Columbia. She is in Vancouver. And Alison Redford is the former Progressive Conservative Premier of Alberta. She is in Calgary. Great to see both of you, former Premiers. Uh, let's start Good with morning. you. Christy Clark, suddenly energy and environment debates is a national unity crisis. Is this a national unity crisis or is someone exploiting this? Uh, well, I think it's a national unity crisis if the people of Canada or in one part of Canada feel like it's a national unity crisis, really. I mean, you, can't, you can only have a national unity crisis if you have a population of people that are really mad. And I can tell you, in Alberta... People are really mad, and there's a huge section of people out in British Columbia, obviously Saskatchewan, Manitoba, that, I mean, the thing is, is that this isn't about Alberta's economy alone. This is about Canada's economy. So one bill would blockade all ports um, on the north coast to Alberta oil. The, the other, and ignoring the fact that there are 4,000 tankers that go up and down that coast every day, by the way, um, so not, you know, not like there wouldn't be any risk of a spill anyway. And then the other bill that will make it, it almost impossible to build a pipeline. So what you see here is you see a part of the country that's very deeply engaged, very dependent on this sector for jobs, very angry, and another part of the country that probably just isn't very much connected to it, lives in cities and just thinks, well, you know what? What's it going to cost us? And that separation, that gap in understanding is always the seeds of a national unity crisis. Well, Alison Redford, I, I get there's an enormous amount of genuine frustration, and the merits of these two bills are debated on both sides, do we need it or not. But who's being reckless here? Is it the premiers or Jason Kenney, who is raising the issue of secession kind of repeatedly, or is it Justin Trudeau, who did he go over the top 
and try to cast this as a national unity crisis to avoid debating the merits of these bills. When premiers write letters in 2019 and say this is a national unity issue, there needs to be better dialogue between the federal government and the provincial government, I have to say with respect that as Canadians we're missing the point. Because as Christie knows, this is no longer a conversation between a federal government and provincial governments that may or may not want vetoes. This has to be a conversation where we say First Nations need to be at the table. We're seeing that evolve into something meaningful. Canadians understand now why that's important. We are not going to get these issues resolved, whether it's climate, energy, or pipeline, without having a really meaningful, fulsome dialogue and equal conversation with First Nations. So the federal government is important. They have a role to lead. Provincial governments need to be at the table. But when we start talking about amendments to legislation that doesn't require First Nations consultation, which is one of the conservative amendments, uh, or where we give provinces alone vetoes, we're not moving through the right. challenges that we know have stopped us from building pipelines in the last 10 years. So this is a new approach, and I think we need to be open to it. Okay, but it's been a divisive approach, and I understand that you know some amendments, the Conservative senators made amendments that were rejected by the Liberal government, and they accepted some amendments from the independent senators. But, but Christy Clark, I guess, you know, if you want to get a pipeline built or if you want to, is, the, is it reckless as a premier, you guys are former premiers, to say, you know what, we really need a real debate on this. And by the way, you should know if this doesn't go our way, uh, we're going to think we might raise the specter of separation. Is that a fair thing to do? I get the politics of it. It is a responsible thing to do, maybe, is a better question. So, let, Evan, let me uh, get, give you a, a, a quick uh, comparison here. One, you know, when I was a kid in school, there was a little girl in my class who used to walk down between the desks, and every day there was a kid, who, a boy, who stuck out his foot to trip her every single time. And you know what he would say when she would say, you're trying to trip me? He would say, you shouldn't be walking here. And that's what the federal government is doing. They are blockading Alberta oil on the north coast. They are crippling potentially the Canadian economy with these bills and this has been cooking for four years and rather than working together they're now accusing western provinces of somehow causing this problem ourselves. How That's does, not this, what Christine, Clark, how does this play out in BC though? I'm just intrigued. BC will be a battleground in the next election, especially the lower yes. mainland. These are very divisive issues. I know where, where you were premier, where you stand, the current NDP government there does not want this pipeline. Just real quick, who does this fight play in favor of politically in the next federal election, Christy Clark? My dad always used to say, the thing in Canada is Quebec wants out, Alberta, Alberta wants in, and British Columbia just isn't that interested in federal politics. And I do think that that's <laughs> sort of at play. And I'm not sure that this is going to have a huge impact one way or another in how the election goes in British Columbia. Uh, because the interior cares a lot about resources. They'll vote conservative. The lower mainland, Vancouver, cares a lot about green issues. They'll vote federal liberal. And the suburbs, who knows what will happen. Yeah. There. And then the NDP, but, which is, know, since Jagmeet Singh is against the, uh, even the LNG pipeline there, that's interesting. Let me bring in Alison Redford. Where, in your view, the raw politics of this, how does this play out? Because, you know, we're in that pre-writ period right now, that pre-election period, rather. How does this play out, this debate that's now a national unity debate? Who does it benefit? Who's, who's the most dangerous uh, position here, Alison Redford. 
Well, I think that what we're going to see now is something that looks very similar to what federal-provincial relations used to look like in Canada. I was doing some work yesterday with my 17-year-old on her history final, and we were talking about, you know, who is René Levesque, who is Peter Lougheed, what happened with the National Energy Program, and I can see a lot of this replaying. One of the things that I think will probably happen from an Alberta perspective is a lot of people are so supportive of Premier Kenny right now and the, and the approach that he's taking in raising this issue that it'll be very challenging, I think, for the federal government to make an impact into Alberta without some pretty dramatic shifts around what Trans Mountain Pipeline could, could be in the next six months. And so then that raises the prospect, which a lot of people in Alberta don't remember, is what is it like to be a province that doesn't have representation in a federal government? You know, when I grew up in Alberta, uh, we were always electing uh, progressive conservative members of parliament who sat in the opposition and were very effective. Uh, but there's a new generation of Albertans who are very used to presuming that they will have a voice in a federal government. And I think it's time to start thinking about whether or not that will be the case and whether or not that changes the nature of the conversation, which I think it probably does. Well, a pipeline runs through the next election, absolutely. Alison Redford and uh, Christy Clark, I hope you celebrate with the Raptors. Uh, we got a long road ahead to this election. Great to have both of you on the program. Thanks so much. But coming up, we get the government's view on the pipelines, the Premier's letter, and the new promise to ban single-use plastics. Are the Liberals trying to build a pipeline or actually choke it off? Environment Minister Catherine McKenna will join us right here on Question Period. Stay with us. Whether we're talking about plastic bottles or cell phones, it will be up to businesses to take responsibility for the plastics they're manufacturing and putting out into the world. Plastic bags, cutlery, straws, they may all be headed for the bin of history. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced plans to ban single-use plastics by 2021. And companies that produce plastics like soda bottles or cell phones will be responsible for the cost and the collection of the recycling. But what does that really mean for you? What impact will that have on small businesses? To talk about that, plus why the carbon tax right now is not enough to meet our Paris obligations in terms of emissions according to the parliamentary budget officer and talk about a lot more i'm joined now by the environment minister Catherine mckenna thanks for being here uh i want to start with i want to start with plastics when will we know the final list of banned products uh well let's start at the beginning i think canadians know that we've got a real problem that we have plastics that are literally killing you know we're finding them in the bellies of whales um you know, straws that are in the nostrils of turtles, seeing those images. And if you go, everyone's getting ready for summer, uh, that we're finding far too much plastics in our lakes, our rivers, our oceans. And if we don't take action, we will have more plastics by weight than fish in our oceans by 2050. So we, we have a problem, and we know that there are solutions, and one of it is certainly looking at banning products. So whether, uh, and other countries have done this, other jurisdictions yeah, like but Europe. You, but when the announcement's made, a yeah. lot of people went, okay, I get the idea behind it. Yep. What's on the list? Well, so, I mean, we've said that we're going to look at, you know, the science behind this. But I think the things that we are looking at, where you have cheap, uh, affordable alternatives, that's a key. Um, and I should always say it is very important that accessibility for anyone for health reasons that needs to use, for example, plastic straw, that's not the intent. The intent is to really look at, you know, plastic bags or plastic straws. Um, or other, you know, single-use plastics that we have alternatives to. Two critiques have happened. It's a fast timeline. Mm -hmm. We don't know what products are on it. And we haven't seen any 
formal reporting on what impact this might have on small businesses, what it have on consumers. Do you have an economic analysis of this? Uh, so we did, our department did an economic analysis, and they showed the huge economic opportunity of taking action um, on single-use plastics. We have other solutions, and right now we actually have a real problem. We're throwing out waste, uh, value. So plastic, when you throw it out, it's 120 to $150 billion a year. We're just throwing away that you can reuse this plastic. And it's not just banned. So I think the second part of the announcement, which didn't get as much attention potentially, is recycling. So, you know, if you live in Ontario, you have a blue bin, you think that everything you're putting in there is getting recycled. Well, guess what? Only 10% of our plastics are getting recycled. So making sure that producers are responsible for the full cost, because right now municipalities okay. are really struggling, um, and that they're actually being recycled is really important. I get it, but just to answer the question, will what will this cost businesses? You said you've done an economic analysis. Yep. Okay, someone says, okay, give me the number. What's the number? Uh, well, look, if you're a small business, you have an opportunity to, I mean, look, go to businesses right now. Many are no longer offering straws unless you ask, and then they're offering a paper straw. Um, so there are many alternatives. The intent is not to penalize anyone. I, I understand that, but, but again, it, is there an economic analysis? If, we're re, if, if businesses are responsible for the cost of the recycling, just tell us, what's, is that going to cost them $100 a year on average, $300 a year, $500? I, people just want to know that, so they say, okay, where's the cost, where's the opportunity, and how do I measure if this is worthwhile? Uh, well, if you're a small business, the, we've said that we are only going to look at bans where there are affordable alternatives. So there, you know, the intent is not to increase the cost, but there's an opportunity for tens of thousands of jobs through recycling, through the innovation that we have. The cost is going to be borne for recycling right. by those who produce the products. That is, if okay. you are someone who okay. produces the plastics, you should be res responsible for making sure you retrieve that plastic so it doesn't end up in the garbage. Okay. Right now, who's bearing the cost? It's all of taxpayers because we're paying it through our municipal taxes. Parliamentary Budget Officer did an analysis of the carbon tax and said, look, at $50 a ton, which is the max so far your government says you will raise the uh, price, of the tax on carbon, the price on carbon, uh, you will not get to your Paris target emissions, okay? Your emissions targets there. You got to go to about $102. That's about 26 cents a liter on gas, he told me. Will your government consider raising the price on carbon to $100 a ton eventually in order to meet the Paris targets? There is no plan to do that. That we've already said we're going to take action on climate change that makes sure that Yes, we're reducing our emissions, meeting our international obligations, but life is affordable and we're creating jobs. We've grown our uh, economy, uh, we've created a million jobs, we're putting a price on pollution, giving the money back to people, right. and we're doing a whole range of other things that are making a huge difference, helping people save money for but more, more energy But more regulations efficient. will come in, you're saying, that will meet the targets, that the PBO did not get the chance to analyze. Is that what your contention they haven't, is? He hasn't analyzed things that we just announced. Okay. So everything from doubling the amount of nature, uh, the, we just announced an incentive for electric vehicles, we need to be doing a lot more in this, that space, tackling plastic pollution, the emissions coming from both creating, uh, creating plastics, but also getting rid of them. So there's a lot of other measures, and we haven't even announced our platform. This is what our Canada's climate plan is, and we negotiated for a year with provinces and territories, so we're implementing that, and then as a Liberal Party, we will be coming out with our platform. Okay, just real quick. Six premiers wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau and said, the two fundamental bills, the environmental assessment bill on new projects, new pipeline projects and other projects, and the tanker ban on the northern coast of B.C. are essentially going to kill the industry. They're a way to not build any natural resources. And they say it's going to cause a national unity crisis. They represent at least half of the population of Canada. 
Should your government be listening more closely to premiers that say you are killing the natural resource sector with these rules? So we have introduced better rules to do what? To protect the environment, rebuild trust of Canadians, meet our constitutional obligation to Indigenous peoples, and to ensure good projects go ahead in a timely way. That's what we need to be doing. You will not get projects going ahead. Trans Mountain, uh, the expansion of Trans Mountain, uh, the twinning of the pipeline, that is exactly how a failed system works. That was under Stephen Harper's failed system, where he gutted the rules, where the, he dismissed the environment, where you know Indigenous consultation wasn't a priority. So people are learning the wrong lesson. We have a 500 a billion dollar opportunity over the next decade to attract investment. To do that, we need to have a system that doesn't polarize people, that doesn't mean you end up in courts. But it's polarizing. But, but, Minister, when six premiers representing 50% of the country are saying this is so bad that it's raising questions about national unity and secession, what do you say to those Canadians that Jason Kenney said 50% of Albertans are talking about secession because of your government's policies? What's your message back to Mr. Kenney? Um, look, these are, these are conservative premiers who are fighting the next election. And what do we have? We have Andrew Scheer. Instead of looking out for the interests of Canadians, he's looking out of the interests for conservative politicians like Doug Ford and Jason but Kenney. Are, but they represent people. We, 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 what our focus has always been is working for Canadians. But so we what's your message to Jason Kenney uh, when he says it's a risking a national unity crisis if you're these through. That we need better rules. If he wants resources to go to market in the 21st century, you need to ensure the environment and the economy go together, that you meet your constitutional obligation, and that's exactly what we're doing. What we will not accept is not taking into account climate change, that not right. meeting our constitutional obligations to Indigenous people, because that's bad for the environment, and it's also will not get projects built. Tuesday, the government has a chance to approve the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, just you tell where do you stand? Would you put the green light on that? Do you support getting that done? We've been clear that that project will only go ahead if it can be done in the right way. That means should we expect should we expect a green light? I mean, you bought it for four point five billion dollars. How do you buy something and then kill it? Well, it can only go ahead. Uh, if we do what the court said. And the court's been clear. We need to meet our obligations to Indigenous peoples, and we need to protect the environment. And that's right. That is what should happen. And look, we believe we need to get our resources to market, but we also know that to do that in the right way, you need to protect the environment, you need to properly right. consult with Indigenous peoples, and very importantly, we need to plan for a cleaner future because that's where the economic opportunities are, and really, that is what we owe our kids. All right, got to leave it there, Minister. Thanks. Good Great. to see you. Thank you. All right, that is Minister Catherine McKenna. Coming up, will the Liberals co-opt a major NDP policy as their own to sway Canadians on universal pharmacare? The scrum weighs in with BC NDP MP Nathan Cullen. Stay right here with Question Period. believe that anybody thinks that when a Liberal government takes over a huge portion of, uh, of a social service and starts spending billions of, of unbudgeted dollars for it, that in any way Canadians are going to be better off. So the national pharmacare debate is now a central part of the campaign or the pre-campaign. The Conservatives are against the plan put forward by the National Advisory Council on Pharmacare, a path to universal pharmacare plan that would cost $15 billion a year by the time it gets implemented in 2027, if it gets implemented. The NDP alleged the Liberals have swiped their idea 
but won't follow through on it. So far, the Liberals are just heavily flirting with the idea, but have made no commitments. Will it actually happen? Does this become a major issue in the election? To talk about that and the disintegrating relationship with China, the scrum is here. Tonda McCharles, a senior reporter with the Toronto Star, is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa bureau chief, is here. Craig Oliver, CTV's chief political commentator and basketball fan. <laughs> and our special <laughs> guest for this round, the outgoing BC MP, uh, Nathan Cullen, with us in studio. All right, uh, we'll talk rafters later, but everyone, okay. the parade is tomorrow. That <laughs> was pretty good. As long as there's time. As long as there's time. Let's talk, if we can intrude on the raptors, rapture to National mm. Pharmacare. Uh, Nathan Cullen, I know this has been part of the NDP playbook for a long time, mm -hmm. but before we get to the fact that the Liberals may have swiped uh, an NDP idea, mm. um, do you fundamentally agree with what the Council put forward, those recommendations? Very much. I mean, that what we've, we've seen, this is not the first time we've studied Pharmacare and the importance of it. We also see the aspect of so many Canadians having to choose between rent and the medicines that they've been prescribed by their doctors, and that for a long time New Democrats have advocated saying, public medicine. We're the only country in the world that has a public medicine program but doesn't have any kind of national pharmacare program to go along with it. It's never made sense to me and I think a lot of Canadians where if you're sick you go to the doctor or maybe the emergency room. We pay for that publicly together. You get prescribed medicine. If people can't afford to take it, they usually end up getting sick again and ending up back on the public dime. So why not close the circle? As, as, as to whether the Liberals would actually, they're going to promise it. Uh, we don't know to what extent. Um, it's, there might be a credibility gap, I think, for some Canadians. Well, that's what, the, that's, that's well, what they're arguing. I think they're going to go all out with it. They, they think uh, they have to. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. Uh, look, I just want to say, I knew Tommy Douglas. Mm. I covered him as Premier, covered him as National Leader, covered the Medicare crisis with him. Uh, I think what Trudeau's doing is he's completing the legacy of Tommy Douglas. If he now, does he's it. not Tommy if Douglas. If he does it, though, right? Well, I think he's going to do it. Okay. That's, so that's the, my premise here. Uh, and, you know, he isn't Tommy Douglas, but he is carrying out that legacy. And he uh, will have good reason to, to use that more, against the NDP. On a more practical level, mm. it will take till 2027 for, for these the people who have to split their pills in two to, to make ends meet. They can't take one pill a day because it's too expensive. So if one in five Canadian cannot afford it, is undercovered or not covered, why are we covering the four and five Canadian that are. If we cover the people that are not covered, it will be faster, it will be more effective, it can be tomorrow. Potentially. These people will have to yeah. wait eight years before they get right. coverage. Whereas, why don't we do it today? Well, why don't well, we give them coverage mm. right away? Well, mm. Tonda, there's a lot of hurdles here, right? Mm -hmm. the health is a provincial jurisdiction. They've got to opt into the system. Yes. There's a cost issue. That's this has right. been much talked about, not implemented. Right. What, right. Are the, what, what are the politics of this? Well, even before they get to the politics, I think the politics are a winner for the Liberals mm -hmm. to yes. go out, as Nathan said, and campaign on it. Um, and it's perhaps more difficult for the Conservatives to say, oh, we're only interested in covering a gap because reach for the stars, right? The, the political ambition of it is great. But the problem from a purely fiscal point of view is it's a huge chunk of change. Mm -hmm. yeah. And getting, then how do you actually deliver that money? Do you give it to the provinces on an unequal basis? How do you, how do you fill in all those gaps? But I think actually this is the beginning of a debate. It may not That's happen in the debate. next mandate, but I think that this is a, a 
beginning of a fantastic but, but ambitious why, debate. Know, why for is Canada? the government covering those that are already so, covered? Right. We, heard well, the same I, argument. Yes. we heard all of these arguments in 1962 in the great debate over no, Medicare. Where would we we'd be now if we didn't have universal medical care? So, no, that, that, the, the fight was all about the cost, the cost, the cost. We are, so we I, are not, well, no longer in 1962. We can afford it. Well, well, I, we I, asked Dr. I asked Dr. Eric Hoskins, who led it, mm -hmm, uh, Nathan mm -hmm. Kellen, and I said, "Why? What, what about means testing, mm. like the child exactly. benefit yeah. plan, which was the Conservatives have a universal, works. and now the Liberals income tested it? Wouldn't this be better as an income tested?" Uh, program as opposed to a universal program. Well, Craig was he there. He said no, and, by the way. Yes, and, I, and the reason I agree with Dr. Hoskins and disagree with uh, some of my friends here just in terms of how we roll this yes. out is that that debate around 1962 and Tommy Douglas, the universality of it, which, what brought more Canadians and eventually all Canadians on board with public medicine. There's, there's also a savings in this that doesn't get talked about with the cost, not just to individuals who are paying. We pay some of the highest drug costs in the world right now, bar none. Yeah and also to small businesses, small and medium businesses who are paying for employee benefits. If you have a universal program, looks to save those businesses a great deal of money, competitiveness, and all those things that we often talk about. I think this is where New Democrats should go. I think this is where we need to spend some time because the big sticker shock of the price is going to hit just, people. Just quickly, because I want to move on. Have the Liberals just swiped it from you? No. I mean, you want to uh, go only, there, but here's, now, here's the now two, they're there. Here's the two credibility yeah. gaps. The Liberals promised a lot in the last election, progressive promises that they didn't follow through on. Second, as they've tried to implement something national, carbon pricing, yeah. it's blown up in their face. So can Trudeau, can Trudeau credibly say, I can bring the premiers on board yeah. right now when he's in a fight with the majority of them yeah. over a different issue? Well, that's, that's interesting, although, we did, although yeah. we did extend CPP with the province. They got some health care. This but is that's different. Great. This All is right, bigger. Tonda, let me start with you on China. Uh, we never had, according to former ambassadors, a worse relationship between Canada and China. We've got two Canadians who are being detained. Uh, the Prime Minister thinks it's purely for political reasons. And then reports have come out that Jean Chrétien, the former president, right. uh, Prime Minister, has said, you know what we should do? We should release this Huawei executive back to the Chinese, even though the, you know, there's an extradition process to the United States. That would ease tension. What does Trudeau do in this situation? Do we release this person, this woman, back to the Chinese, or does Trudeau look weak? I think it's really hard for Trudeau to walk that back now. He has stood on principle from the beginning in this, and frankly, it's the card he gets to play in all the international gatherings. I don't think he can walk it back. The best thing he can do is go to Washington on Thursday and persuade Donald Trump that he has to help Canada in this regard in order for the U.S. to look strong vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, one thing that Trudeau could do is agree that it will be a very good thing if a judge, no pressure of course, there would never be any, oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> decides in January that this whole operation has been set up by the White House as part of a, a, a bargaining chip in their global mm -hmm. struggle with the Chinese over the future of the global economy. The and, it's, and Huawei and, and Hmong are all right there on the table. The, it's a setup. The problem with that is that uh, Ottawa has fired their former ambassador to China mm. for saying just that that this was a political ploy from the United States. They want to use her as a peon in their negotiations mm -hmm. with China, and that that is what her lawyer should argue, that this yes. was political and politically motivated. And he was fired for, telling, for saying what now more, peop more and more people are saying, that she was a peon and that we were dragged into a political game between China and the United but States. How do you get out of it? He has to withdraw. The, the Americans could withdraw their extradition request. The charges against her would still stand. 
Uh, but, yeah. you know, I'm betting that he won't do that. Kretchen hit on an inescapable truth. This doesn't end until she's Absolutely. out of the country. Yes. But Christian Freeland said it would yes. be very dangerous precedent indeed for exactly. Canada to alter its yes. behavior when it comes yes. to honoring an extradition treaty. So, Last words. So, so what does Trudeau do without looking weak or without wrecking a relationship? I, I, I have no idea because he's boxed yeah. himself so fully Absolutely. in because what Christian Freeland said is right. Mm -hmm. If this becomes the precedence, if you have some sort of dispute with Canada, all you got to do is arrest a couple Canadians, put them on death row, and we'll relent. It is a terrible precedence to set. Mr. Kretchen, I, I hear his real politic, but I think he's wrong. I think this would send the wrong message. The message I would send to China is you want to compete and be in the world, in the League of Nations, if you will. This is not the way nations act and react to when they have trade disputes, which is what this is. But asking a judge to step in, Trudeau can't do that. Yeah. Not after SNC no. Lavalin and uh, Jody Wilson. Maybe his message was to China. But Trudeau's well, got to give a message. Lemetti we have an ambassador yet? Lemetti can we don't have an ambassador. Come on, do they don't need it. All right, no. I got to wrap it. But in the meantime, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, two Canadians, yes. are in jail, and they are pay they are the grist in the mill here. All right, I got to leave it there. Nathan Cullen, thanks. I hope this is not your last panel on question. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of up to you guys, really. You know, I'll be hanging around. Well, if it's up to us, it's been. Great. <laughs> no, no, of course, he's not running again, but he'll be on the program. Lots more coming up. Raptors fan get a big dose of politics with their basketball. Third-party advertisers uh, took advantage of lax rules and big audiences to push an anti-sheer agenda and others an anti-Trudeau issue. The Scrum weighs in next with Stephen Harper's former director of communications, Andrew McDougall. Stay right here with Basketball Fevered Question Period. Following Doug Ford, conservative Andrew Scheer would cut billions more from health care. Where would that leave you? Okay, that's far enough. Hold it right there. With American-style health care, where the care you get depends on what you can pay. Andrew Scheer will never stand up to Doug Ford, and his weakness will cost you. So if you're watching the Raptors beat the Golden State Warriors, and who didn't become the NBA championships, uh, champions, you probably noticed that the ads were wedged in between the play. Months before the federal election, the political war is already on, quite clearly. Third-party advertisers like Engage Canada, the group behind the ad you just saw, are not subjected to Election Canada rules outside the writ period. That means they can spend however much money they want on these ad campaigns before June 30th, and you won't even know who's given them the money. Do the rules need to be tightened to level the playing field? Will their message work? And does Andrew Scheer need to try to distance himself from Ontario Premier Doug Ford? And then there's those anti-Trudeau ads the Conservatives are also running. Still effective after the last campaign. Talk about that and lots more. Let's bring back the scrum. Tonda McCharles is back. Joyce Napier is back. Craig Oliver is back. And our special guest today is the former Director of Communications to Stephen Harper, freshly in from London, England, Andrew McDougall. Good to have you back in town. So, Andrew, Engage Canada trying to basically say, Andrew Shear and Doug Ford are the same thing. Is that effective? Does Shear have to worry about that in Vote Rich Ontario? Well, I think somebody thinks it's effective, or else they wouldn't be putting the money behind it. And I think we like to oversell this idea of provincial rubbing off on the federal, and Doug Ford will rub off on Andrew Scheer. I think people get that federal politics is at a level higher than provincial politics, and it's not the tail that wags the dog. 
and then Andrew Shear has to put his own message out and, and prove that he is his own man, but by doing, not by engaging in this it's tit for tat and advertising battles, but actually putting forward his ideas and his policies. I'll just remind you though, in the last campaign, certainly Stephen Harper was pretty sure that there were some coattails to ride because he brought Doug Ford and Rob Ford together to have a big push uh, rally, big political rally in the GTA, hoping to win seats, and it did not work for him. Yeah, and, and Joyce, you see Ford and Kenny, they have all openly saying they're going to campaign against Justin Trudeau, you know, that now famous McLean's Magazine cover, uh, the resistance as it were. Does that hurt Andrew Scheer because Ford's popularity has started to plunge? Well, it hurts him in that I don't think Canadians know him well enough, and that's where it can hurt him. Um, they can't identify with him, or a lot of people can't identify with him, because you really don't know what he stands for and who he is. So to fill in the blanks, you'll put in a Ford, you'll put in a Jason Kenney, figure out they're all conservatives, and throw them all in the same basket. I think that is his main problem, is that he's an undefined leader so far. And so close to an election yeah. campaign, if I were a conservative, I would worry about that. Craig, there is that brand pollination. The Ford brand mm. is big. The Kenny brand is big. The Shear brand is evolving. Uh, well, the Ford band brand is really hit uh, almost rock bottom uh, since its beginnings. And you have to really wonder if that's a dancing partner you would be picking in Ontario if you were Shear. Uh, he might be stomping all over his feet. Uh, I think it's a very risky maneuver, and I think the... Liberals now have got every invitation to campaign against Ford and tie him to Scheer uh, be, because Ford started with the attacks on uh, the carbon tax. And in fact, we, saw, we saw this week Mr. Scheer distance himself from Doug yeah. Ford because the Conservatives, I think you'd agree, Andrew, have, have seen their sub own support, certainly in Ontario, plunge as a result. So Scheer went out this week to say, I'm my own man, I have my own policies. That was a very deliberate message. Yeah, and I think that'll be reinforced by the fact that the campaign will happen and you will have a rip period of six, seven weeks where yeah. it will be nothing yeah. but Scheer versus Trudeau. And so that will change the dynamic around yeah. that conversation. Do we need to this change the skirmish. rules about yeah. these third parties like Engage? They are, they're, we don't know who's funding them, Joyce. We don't know um, where they're getting their money from. Uh, should we change the rules so at least we know that there's more transparency? I think it's, or? It, it's always good to know the origin of, a, of an ad, but I think in watching them, it's pretty obvious where they stand. Uh, do I want to know how much money they spent on an ad? Sure, just out of curiosity. But I mean, you watch the ad, what more do you need to know? These are anti-Trudeau ads, these are anti-Sheer ads. That's who's, it. Who's but paying for who's them? Who's paying for I them? I want to know that. Um, yes, yes, sure. You want to know that I, because uh, of more the transparency power. is right, good. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to be influencing the vote, I want to know who is trying to influence a, an important vote in, in the country. Sure. Is, it, is it foreign? Is it national? Yeah. I mean, these are all is questions. Is it foreign is a big question. Why, why are the Conservatives sort of redoing those ads from the Harper years on Trudeau? We also saw those in the basketball. Are those still effective? They didn't seem to work last time. Why would they, what would be, I mean, this is your business, why would they rerun those ads? Well, I think they now have four years of track record to put that statement against. So they were making an assertion in 2015 uh, that Justin Trudeau wasn't up to the job. Now they have four years of track record to match to that same sentiment. So I think they're betting that if they now put his record, and, and there hasn't been a, a whole lot of achievement, the Liberals certainly aren't running on a big positive message of here's all the great things we did, 
uh, choose us again. They're coming out very negatively as well. So I think that the Conservatives are going to match that now to his record. And I think they'll, they'll have more success than they did the last time. Uh, real quick on, on the Raptors, one last one. Did these things, Craig, have any impact? Sports is always about more than just the game, which the values. You saw the Tim Horton ad with mm -hmm. uh, Navbatia, the super fan who came from India. He trumpets diversity. Uh, does When people say, well, this is, a, this is a different Canada, a diverse Canada, is there any political knock-on effect to the Raptors phenomenon? Do you recalibrate messages if you're a politician? I, I think so because of the diversity of the team. Uh, there are at least three players from places in Africa, one from Spain, uh, and of course they're predominantly African-Americans. I think the politics is going to be very interesting as far as the White House is concerned. Remember when the Warriors uh, won the first a couple of years ago, they were invited to the White House. Black players said, no, the president's a racist, we're not going there. The next year, the president didn't invite them at all. Is he going to invite now oh, the Canadian team to come to the White House? Or what all if? I care about is when they come to Parliament, because yeah. please well, God, they're coming to Parliament. But is there, okay, but there will be some controversy if the Canadian team says, no, we don't want to go there. How will Trump They've got a good out. It's, we're a Canadian team. We're going to Parliament. Uh, yeah. it, it, no, no, does this have any knock-on effect? Here comes the buzzkill. There's not one Canadian that's going to vote in October 2019 going, how did I feel when the Raptors won? This is just something that Torontonians in particular like to flatter themselves. They're the only multicultural city. Every team but, They're a collection Stephen of rich Harper millionaires are better about, than ours. But, but a kind of Canadian where Tim Hortons sort of represented something. It, it, was, it was more than about the coffee. It was something else. It was a value system. That, and Tim Hortons is changing that vision. Is there something that a politician pays attention to now when they look at the crowds? Well, you might do. And, and, and you might think that the typical hockey, hockey audience is more of a conservative audience, older, whiter. If you go to a rink now, you still don't see a lot of diversity. Basketball is an inner city game. And the one thing the Raptors have really changed is put that on the radar for young kids particularly young kids in big cities, is something to do. It okay. was a, it was a game on, in Placentia, Newfoundland. It was That's glorious. That is, that is not true. That <laughs> basketball is a game in small-town Canada all over the place. All right, got to leave it there. Uh, Andrew, great to see you back in town, and thanks to all of you. I should say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, to my wonderful father, Dad. I love you very much. Happy Father's Day. And the whole country will celebrate the Raptors Parade tomorrow. Go Raps, go. That was great. Even Andrew McDougall may join in the fun there. And we will be back here in seven short days. Take good care.